following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Welcome to CCF, or maybe, maybe we should say, uh, would you welcome us to your home? It's <laughs> kind of how it works now. It is good to come, and our purpose, the same as always, to really worship God, to worship Christ, to celebrate Him together. Uh, and my message this morning is radical religion, uh, replacing the old with something uh, radically new. Uh, so we'll be looking uh, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. If you want to follow along in your Bibles as we read. And if you're at home and you would like to read with me, I'm uh, using the ESV, or you can follow along, and you're welcome to read with me out loud as, as we read this together. Uh, Matthew 9, verse, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. As Jesus uh, reclined at table in, in, in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. But if it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Um, As I said, the uh, title for my message is Radical Religion. And um, we see here that Jesus uh, brought and came to bring a very radical religion, a, in fact, a, a radical revolution in religion. Uh, but maybe uh, I've got to be careful that I define the word radical, because sometimes we may think of radical religions being extremists like uh, Muslim extremists or uh, militant Buddhists, right? Uh, people who are militant, who seek to force their religion on others and are uh, uh, largely intolerant of, of other religions. In fact, they would uh, attack or feel justified in persecuting those who have different faiths or different ideas, even within their own religion. But the reality is these, these groups are actually not radical at all. Uh, because the word radical means the belief that there should be a great or extreme change. right? And what these, uh, for example, uh, so-called radical Muslims are doing is not trying to change anything, but they're trying to... Uh, violently protect things from change. Uh, What they're fighting for is that their religion would not change, that it would uh, stick with the traditional. Another definition is that uh, radical is something that's very different from the usual or the the traditional. 
So it's extreme because it's moving away from what's traditional. What we see is with so-called radical religions is they're actually holding on to what's traditional. They're extreme in their extreme effort to keep things the way they are and not let them change. Uh, so they're not advocating something new or trying to change or trying to do something truly radical, but rather they're just extreme in trying to preserve and keep things the way they are. Um, and, and I would say that, um, that religion as a whole, if we were to look at all religions uh, and its purpose, there are two main functions of religion. Um, now, many religions, you would think, uh, try to explain how we got here and to uh, think about who God is. But actually, that's not true. Uh, when we think about religions, there are a lot of religions in the world who, who make very little effort to uh, even identify that there's a God. And of course, that's Buddhism. In Buddhism, uh, they make no acknowledgement that there is even a God or a creator. And so that's also true of, of animism, where they recognize that there are spirits out there, but there's no effort to really identify them or have a theology about who these spirits are. Um, all, the only concern is how to appease them, how to keep them away. But all religions do these two things, I think. And if you disagree with me, uh, you can send me an email. But I, I think uh, that religions have two meaningful functions for all people. Uh, the first is that it makes people feel like they're good enough. right? All religions do this. All religions have some kind of moral code uh, that we're expected to live up to. And if we meet the standard, we can feel good about ourselves. See, I am a good person. I've kept the rules. I've done all the right things, right? And so I don't have to feel bad about myself. I can feel good about myself. But then there's people who don't keep the rules and who don't measure up, who are not good at, at, at living by the moral code, and they're considered bad people. And they should feel bad about themselves because they're not good like us. And, and religions do this. All religions uh, identify the good people and the bad people. Right, and the consequences that will happen to them. Right? Um, the second thing that's, I think, true of all religions is that if you find yourself not being good enough, if you can't keep all the rules, then there's uh, always some way in the religion uh, that you can have rituals or practices or duties uh, that if you try hard enough, you can make up for those failures. Right? So I may not be able to keep the moral code. I find that I'm not really such a good person, but I can make up for it through some kind of ritual or ceremony. Uh, and, and if I just try hard enough at keeping the religious duties and practices, then I can still feel good about myself. Because while I'm not necessarily a good person, I'm a person who tries hard and works at it. And so I can be proud of my religious duties and my religious efforts. Uh, and that makes up for my moral failures, right? So, um, and, and that I think really describes all religions, and it's, as we will see in this passage, it certainly describes Judaism. It described the religion of the Jewish people. Uh, they were all about being good, and where you weren't good enough, being at least diligent to keep uh, the certain practices and duties of their religion at the extreme level. Uh, but Jesus comes to bring something new and different. He seeks to change that radically. Uh, Jesus uh, came bringing a new religious system or a re new religious way that unravels all of that. And, and, and so Jesus brings what is truly a radical religion because it's moving away from what all other religions do. Uh, and as we look through this passage and as we get to the end, we want to ask this important question. 
is the Christianity that we practice, the Christianity that we hold on to and, and believe in, is it really the traditional religion of the rest of the world that's all about being good and trying hard? Or is it the radical religion that Jesus introduces, uh, introduced to us when he came and walked on this earth? Um, and the reality is it is super easy to make the Christian faith a matter of being good and trying hard, of being diligent about certain religious duties, right, so that we can feel good about ourselves. Um, and some would say, but aren't Christians supposed to be good? Like, are we supposed to be known as like horrible people? Uh, well, we'll talk about that. Um, are we supposed to practice certain spiritual disciplines? Don't we talk about reading our Bibles and praying, right? Well, uh, we are. Uh, but let's talk about and see how these things fit together. So, look at the passage. Uh, two stories here. Uh, uh, and each story has uh, uh, its own point, but they, they, they mesh together very well. Uh, so the first story is about uh, the call of Matthew in verse 9. And uh, Jesus calls Matthew, who is a tax collector. And Matthew is so excited about um, uh, he got Jesus' call on his, on his uh, life that he throws a party and he invites all of his friends. And uh, the Jews see that Jesus and his disciples are now hanging out with this group of tax collectors. And we'll talk a little bit about how horrible that is in a minute. These are bad guys. These are guys who, who were, uh, did not have a good reputation. Right? And, and the Pharisees were, were really the quintessential. They were the, the pinnacle, the supreme example of, of, of real religion, of the, of the religion of the world. Right? The Pharisees lived to prove they were good people by keeping the rules. Uh, and in fact, they were, they, were, they were off the deep end keeping the rules. Jesus talks to them about tithing the mint and dill, which meant in their, in their kitchen they would have a little, a little small pot where they would plant mint or dill, and they might have one little plant that grows up. And when they would pick a couple leaves to throw in their soup, before they threw it in the soup, they would tithe out of those two leaves, right? That's how meticulous they were about and detailed they were about keeping the rules. And so they could walk around as people in their eyes and in their minds who were the supremely good people because they kept all the rules. They did all the right things. They were very careful about what foods they eat and about washing their hands at the right times. And most of all, they were careful about avoiding people who didn't. And because they were good, and this is what religion does, when we know who the good people are and we know who the bad people are by how they keep the rules, what happens is the good people can feel that they can look down on all the bad people. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. And they saw several groups of, of, of bad people. First, there were the everyday Jews, everyday Jewish people who... Uh, their main fault was that they were not as diligent to keep the rules as they did. That doesn't mean that they broke all the commandments or probably even broke most of the commandments, but they were not as careful. They were not as serious and diligent in keeping the rules as, as the Pharisees. So they were a step lower. And, and because of that, they were worried that, that these people might make a mistake and make themselves unclean, and that if they hung out with them, it would make the Pharisees unclean. And so they would avoid them. They, they would fellowship with them some. They would hang out some. They would buy from them at the market. But when they got home, they had to do extra washing. Kind of like COVID, you know, the whole 22nd thing, right? Or maybe they would keep some kind of social distance from them so that they wouldn't be um, contaminated by them. But then there was another group who were real sinners, like prostitutes. 
and thieves and swindlers and tax collectors. People who were clearly breaking the law in their minds. Bad people. Like, those are truly bad people. And then the third group were the Gentiles, right, who didn't have the law and they didn't even know how to keep the law. So clearly everything the Gentiles did was evil and bad, right? So you've got the good, you've got the bad, the sinners. But then I talk about the good, bad, the ugly. Who are the ugly? Well, these are the ugly, right? The ugly people are those who are not just bad, but they're bad and nobody likes them, right? Their, their, their sins are so bad that they're just despised and hated by everybody. And that was the tax collector. Okay, the tax collector was not just bad, he was ugly. Because he wasn't just uh, sinning in their minds. Uh, and they, they, they tended to sin. They were corrupt. They would take bribes. They would overtax people. They were traitors to their country because they were collecting taxes to be sent to Rome and to other governments. So they were not liked, right? Like some people can be really bad sinners, but we like them. They're likable people. And their sins aren't, aren't, aren't super culturally or socially unacceptable. But that was not true of a tax collector. They were bad and they were ugly. They were hated. They were looked at as the scum of the earth, right? Um, and, and the Pharisees come and they see Jesus uh, eating at the house of, of Matthew. Now, they don't necessarily know the whole story that Jesus has just called him to be a disciple. All they see is Matthew holding a huge party and he's invited all, invited all of his friends. And, and to the Pharisees, they, they see how can Jesus be a good person if he's hanging out with bad people? Because in their mind, one of the main rules is that you don't hang out with bad people. Like, that's the rule. If you're a good people, you don't hang out with bad people. So here's Jesus hanging out with sinners, right? How could Jesus possibly be a good person when he's hanging out with such bad and ugly people? Um, but, but we know uh, kind of the background behind this. We know why uh, they're having this party. In verse 9, it says that as Jesus passed on from wherever he was, from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And certainly this was uh, the Matthew who wrote the gospel. And it's a, a brief uh, account of his own call to follow Jesus. Uh, and he doesn't go into great detail because uh, he's not really the main focus or point of the story. Uh, really what it's about is, um, is the stir, the, 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 uh, the uproar that it causes with the Pharisees. But, but it's important to talk a little bit about Matthew. Matthew uh, is called while he's at his tax booth. Right? So Jesus knows who he is. It's not like Jesus was a ta- or that Matthew was a tax collector, but Jesus wasn't aware of that, right? No, Jesus goes up to Matthew when he's sitting at his little tax booth, tax office, you know, pay here, and so it's clear to Jesus that he knows who he is. And the tax collectors, uh, as I said, had this reputation of being real sinners, not just everyday Jews who kept the laws, but weren't maybe as, as, as serious about some of the minor rules. No, these were people who were who were cheating people. And they had a reputation of taking bribes and of overcharging taxes, of essentially stealing money. And we all know that nobody likes the tax guy, right? Even if he's honest. right? Nobody wants to give up their money uh, to the tax guy. Uh, but Jesus goes to him and, and, and in a real quick and short form. It says Jesus calls him. And uh, immediately, Matthew gets up and follows him. Jesus says, follow me. Uh, Matthew was located in Capernaum where Jesus had made his home base and certainly he had heard him teach. 
Uh, he had probably seen Jesus do miracles. And so when Jesus calls him, he, he knows uh, who Jesus is. And he wants to follow him. And he gets up, he leaves his tax office, he leaves his money bags, he leaves his vocation, and he follows Jesus. And as we know, when Jesus calls somebody to be a follower, he is calling them to be a, um, an apprentice, right? a student in training, learning to ultimately do the things that Jesus is doing. So when Jesus calls him, he just doesn't say, hey, come over here, let's do coffee. He's saying, no, I'm asking you to be a student of mine who will learn to do the work that I'm doing. Right? So Jesus calls this bad guy to, to be one of his disciples. And of course we know uh, that he actually becomes one of the twelve. Right? Not just any old disciple, but one of the twelve who, who carries uh, the, the work of Jesus after the resurrection. And uh, right away, Matthew is so excited that uh, he instantly becomes an evangelist. And he wants all of his friends to know about his new friend, Jesus. And so he has this party. He invites all his sinful friends, uh, tax collectors and sinners. And so these could have been, these would have been uh, the lowlifes of, of Jewish society, the outcasts, the people that everybody else looked down on. And he invites them because he wants them to know Jesus. He wants them to uh, hear Jesus' call on them. And so he invites them and he throws this party. Um, but of course the Pharisees... Uh, uh, have no place for this, right? They have no place for and no category for this. Uh, why is Jesus uh, hanging out with these bad people? So Jesus, so they come to uh, Jesus' disciples and they say, you know, what is with this Jesus eating with uh, all these bad people? What kind of a teacher are you following? And Jesus overhears, or the re- disciples report to him, and Jesus confronts the Pharisees. And he says to them, um, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Uh, first thing Jesus says is, look, I came as a doctor. I came to heal both physically and spiritually those who are sick. And you know what? This is what doctors do. Doctors hang out with sick people. Right? They don't go where the healthy people are. It's what they do. They go where the sick people are. So Jesus' first answer to them is just a very logical one. So I came as a healer. I came as a doctor. So of course I go where there are sick people. That's my calling. But then he quotes, uh, well actually he, he uh, commands them. He says, you need to go and learn what this means. And Jesus quotes a passage from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And his very phrase, go and learn, is a huge insult to these guys, right? The, the Pharisees... Remember, are diligent rule followers. They are the ultimate rule keepers. And to do that, you have to study the Bible, right? They had to study the law and know all the rules. So they prided themselves on their commitment to the Word. These were guys who read and studied the Bible. And Jesus says says to them, Look, guys, you need to go back to school. You missed some things when you were studying the Bible. You need to learn what this means. And he quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, which, where it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And in Hosea, it's God speaking through the prophet Hosea to Israel. And God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus says, you guys need to learn what this means. Your theology is, is deficient. 
and so is your religion. Now, what does this mean? Like, if we're going to go learn what this means. What does it mean? Uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, I have normally read this verse and this passage to mean something that, like this, that the Pharisees needed to learn how to have mercy and love for sinners like Jesus does. Uh, and that's certainly true. That was one of the problems, is that the Pharisees did not have mercy. Right? It was not in their vocabulary, and it was not in their practice. And, and so... Um, so we could take it that way that Jesus is saying, look, if you understood mercy, if you were more merciful, you wouldn't be accusing me of eating with sinners, but you would see that uh, they deserve or they should be shown mercy. Uh, and that's partly true, partly what Jesus is saying. Uh, but we really need to better understand all of the context of, of what's going on in Hosea and in Hosea chapter 6, in Hosea's full sermon that he gave to the Israelites. Um, and what... If we go, we're not going to read it, but if we went back and we looked at Hosea chapter 6, we would see that uh, Israel in that time had been extremely unfaithful to God. They were not good. They were not rule followers or rule keepers. They were not as diligent as the Pharisees. In fact, the Pharisees' ancestors, way back in the time of Hosea, had turned away from God. But they hadn't turned away so far that they stopped keeping the rituals. And so the, uh, the people of that day were diligent about making sacrifices at the temple. And they would go every day and they would make their offerings at the temple. But the rest of their hearts and the rest of their lives had turned away from God and they were not following His law. They were not keeping the covenant and they were not good. They had been utterly unfaithful. In fact, Hosea's very life was an object lesson about this. Uh, if you know anything about Hosea, you know that God commanded Hosea to actually go out and marry a prostitute, uh, which was against the law. It was unlawful. But, but Hosea does it because he's a prophet and he does what God says. And it was to be a picture of God taking in an unworthy wife. And then after Hosea married his wife, uh, she left him. And she returned back to her whoring, her prostitution, her immorality. Right? And after all that, God comes to Hosea again and he says, I want you to take her back again as your wife. Now, that was unheard of. Uh, uh, Hosea had every right to divorce her. And actually under the Old Testament law, not only to divorce her, but he had the right to actually take her out and stone her to death. Right? And maybe as a, as a husband who had loved his wife and then she had been so unfaithful, maybe he felt like that. Maybe he felt like, man, I just want to get rid of her. She... She's betrayed my love, and she has been unfaithful. Unfaithful. But God says, No, I want you to take her back. I want you to show her mercy. I want you to forgive her, and I want you to love her again. And so Hosea does that. And God uses Hosea's life as a picture of his own relationship with his unfaithful bride, Israel. They were unfaithful. They worshipped false gods. They turned away from God. Their hearts were not true to God. They were like an unfaithful wife who had loved other men. But God says to them in, in Hosea chapter 6, Look, I call you back. I want you back. If you will come back to me, I will love you again and I will show you mercy. I will not judge you and I will not give you the punishment you deserve, but I will show you mercy. So when God says in that passage, I desire mercy, not sacrificing, He's not talking about them showing mercy. He's talking about Himself. God's saying, look, I desire to show you mercy and that you come to Me 
through my heart of mercy, not on the basis of your empty, meaningless sacrifices. Because I am a God of mercy. I am a God who seeks to give forgiveness and grace to sinners and to those who are unfaithful and those who have turned away. No matter how bad you have been, no matter how unfaithful, God is a God who calls His unfaithful people back to Himself with mercy. So when, when he says, when Jesus says this to the Pharisees, they would, uh, he, his, his mind was that they would go study that passage and probably they knew it. Right? They knew that Israel in the past had over and over again been so unfaithful and had rejected God and they were not good. And yet God had been forgiving and gracious and merciful. And that the basis of his relationship with them was not their goodness. Not how well they kept the sacrifices or kept the rituals. But it was His own love and mercy. And so Jesus is really saying to them, you Pharisees are not good. You are like your ancestors who have abandoned your God. And no matter how serious you are about the rituals, about the rules, that's not the point. The point is, are you being faithful to God? And no, you are not. The very fact that they uh, did not understand Jesus was proof that their hearts were not with God. They were proud and arrogant. And they were confident in their own self-made righteousness, not in God's grace and His mercy. And so Jesus concludes to them, He says, he says that is why, for, he says, for I came not to call the righteous but the sinners. In other words, this is why I came. My purpose, my mission is uh, to call not the righteous, but sinners. I came so that uh, through my life and ultimately through the cross, I would extend God's mercy and grace to broken, sinful people. And that is radical religion. Because Jesus is saying here that it's not about your goodness. It's not about how worthy you are, how well you are, how good you are at keeping the rules. He says, I don't care about your sacrifice. I don't care about your rule keeping. That's not what I desire. Right? What I desire more than anything else is that you would come to me and seek mercy and forgiveness and grace. And Jesus says, that's why I came. I came as God's agent of grace to bring through the cross God's grace and love to sinners. I came to call sinners. And he just called Matthew, who is this horrible, sinful person. And he said, that's why I'm here. That's what my life and my mission, that's what my religion is about. My religion is about calling to myself, as true followers, sinful people. Not just kind of sinful, but really sinful people. And, and uh, we know that the, the Pharisees couldn't understand that, stand this because they thought themselves righteous. Right? They, they couldn't understand what Jesus was about because they thought they didn't need mercy because they were keeping the rules. And because of that, they missed Jesus altogether. Then we come to the second story. Um, and this time it's not the Pharisees that come, but it's actually uh, the, the disciples of John the Baptist. Now this time John the Baptist is in prison uh, but uh, and, and would soon be executed. Uh, but... John's disciples, his followers, kept kind of a a religion of John the Baptist going for quite a while. In fact, all the way into the book of Acts, we see 
these pockets of uh, disciples of John, and um, th- these guys had kind of uh, missed the, the real point of, of John's mission. Right? John said, I came as a forerunner to point to the Messiah. When he comes, I must increase and he must de- decrease. John says, I need to leave the scene because the Messiah will come and you, you need to stop following me and shift your allegiance to the Messiah. But there were a number of John's followers who somehow missed that. Right? And they kept on with the teachings of John, but they missed searching for the Messiah. So they come to Jesus and they, um, they also have an observation and actually a complaint. Right? And they say, um, look, uh, the disciples of uh, John came uh, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? And actually some uh, translations, uh, some uh, texts actually say, we fast often. Not just we fast some, but we fast all the time. But your disciples do not fast, right? Um, th- this, is, uh, this is a great example of trying harder. Right? Remember we said there's two parts of religion. One is showing that I'm good enough. Uh, the other is that if I'm not good enough, I at least need to be zealous. I need to be diligent at religious duties. And of course, John taught a baptism of repentance. So these guys knew they couldn't be good enough. They had to repent. They had to uh, own up to the fact that they were sinners. But instead of falling under grace, they decided to, to deal with their sin through their own spiritual disciplines, through their diligence to religious duties. Look, we can feel good about it. And essentially what they're saying is, look, we and the Pharisees can feel really good about ourselves because look at our serious devotion to these religious practices. We fast all the time. And you guys are just a bunch of party animals, right? What's wrong with you, right? I don't see any real... You guys don't seem, seem to be very serious about your religion. You're just having parties, hanging out with sinners. Like, like there's something wrong here. Uh, clearly, you guys aren't trying very hard. And, and everybody knows that any good religion, you have to try harder. That's what it's about. If you want to be serious about the religion, it means you try harder. You work more at those duties, those religious duties and rituals. And Jesus says to them, and, and it's interesting, by the way, did Jesus fast? We know that Jesus fasted. We know at least one time he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. That's pretty serious. Like if you want, if you want to put on the chart of like all out there, like diligent, the real deal. For, I'd say forty days and forty nights is is up there, right? Jesus wasn't just like a softy, you know. Um, and we know at other times that Jesus and his disciples fasted. Certainly in uh, after Jesus' death, uh, his disciples fast. But he doesn't want to go down that path because it, they misunderstand the purpose, right? They they don't get it. And so he doesn't even talk about that. He doesn't even say, oh man, I'm, I'm sure I've fasted more than you, right? He doesn't go down that road. Instead he says, look, um, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He says, look, we don't fast because we're celebrating. And we are celebrating exactly what John, your mentor, proclaimed. That the Messiah was coming and when he came... He came as the bridegroom, the Messiah. And the bridegroom was an Old Testament image that uh, everybody came to understand as an image of the Messiah. The Messiah would come as a bridegroom uh, to uh, renew and restore his kingdom and to celebrate the wedding feast 
where God would, would be yet again joined to his bride. Right? And he says, look, the bride is here. The, bride, the bridegroom is here. So it's a season of rejoicing. Uh, and in, in Jewish custom, there was probably nothing that was celebrated more joyously than weddings. And we do that in our day. But if we were to compare how we do weddings with how the Israelites and the Jewish people did weddings, ours do not compare, right? We know that most Jewish weddings were a week long. And we know from Jesus' miracle in, uh, at Cana in John chapter 2 that they drank a lot, so much that it, at the wedding in Cana they ran out, right? And that was a huge disgrace. And so Jesus salvages uh, the, the wedding. And in fact, uh, we know from a text during that time that the one time you could... You, you were allowed to suspend some of your religious practices and, and, and diligence was at a wedding, right? So like during a wedding season, if you were one who practiced, practiced fasting, you would not fast during that seven days of a wedding because you would be robbing the bride and groom of the gift of joy, right? And so you would not fast. You would not do some of the other religious practices that would have been expected the rest of the year. Because it was supposed to be a time of all-out joy and celebration. Nothing was to interfere with that. Nothing was to cut off the celebration and the joy. And that's why Jesus' miracle of providing the wine has, has so much implications. That Jesus made sure the joy continued on. right? That the party did not end short. Um, and so, so that's why they don't fast, because it's, it's not a season of fasting. It's a season of celebrating the arrival of the Messiah. But Jesus does say uh, that, that, they, uh, that the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And of course, we know that, uh, that Jesus would not be on earth forever, and that the taking away was a reference ultimately to the cross, where Jesus would go and he would lay down his life as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Um, uh, then, uh, so, so Jesus is saying here that, look, the radical religion he is bringing is not about feeling good about ourselves or proving ourselves that we try hard enough through, through religious duties. Rather, he is bringing a, a religion that should be all about celebrating the salvation we have in the Messiah. It's not about our religious duties and diligence. It's about celebrating joyfully what we have received through the work of the bridegroom and celebrating Him, celebrating Jesus as the one who came for us. Right? Uh, that should be the nature of our, uh, our religion, the religion that Jesus brings. It ought to be full of worship and rejoicing and joy. And then Jesus finishes by saying, giving a couple of rather strange uh, object lessons or illustrations. He says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. So Jesus says, look, if you have a worn out coat, and you have a hole in, in, in the elbow or somewhere on it, and you take unshrunk cloth and you sew it over the hole, when you wash it, that unshrunk cloth will shrink and it will actually tear the cloth around it and it will make the hole twice as big. So it won't work, right? It, it makes things worse. Likewise, he says, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled on the ground and the skins are destroyed. 
But instead, new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Uh, of course, they didn't have uh, glass bottles like we do, and certainly didn't have plastic bottles like we do. So they would keep their wine in uh, skins made out of, uh, in vessels made out of animal skins. Uh, and in the fermentation process, wine would expand. And so if you put new wine that would expand in the fermentation into an old, brittle, worn-out wineskin, it would burst it. It would, it would explode. And uh, the wine would all run out and the skin would be ruined. So they would put new wine into a brand new skin that would expand as the uh, wine expanded. And the point Jesus is making here is that he is, he is bringing something new. Jesus did not come to patch up Judaism. Right? The problem with the religion of the Israelites, the problem with the Old Testament wasn't just that it had a few worn out spots that needed to be patched. Right? It needed to be filled with His presence. Uh, and so it needed a whole new container. Right? Uh, and of course, Jesus is not saying that the Old Testament was not important or that it wasn't necessary. We saw before that Jesus says, not, not, a, not a stroke of the law will pass away. Uh, until it is what? Until it is fulfilled in Him. So Jesus came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And in fulfilling it, uh, He made it obsolete. Right? And what He brought was something very new. Uh, in my many days of owning many, many, many cars, uh, uh, I've mostly bought old cars uh, that need lots of fixing. Right? But I've had many experiences where um, I fixed the car so much and it still just kept breaking, that I actually would have been better off buying a new car. And in fact, uh, I had that experience here in Thailand, where after I had replaced two engines and three transmissions, or maybe two transmissions and three engines, it would have been cheaper if I just bought a new car, right? And Jesus is saying, it's, it's not patching up the old, it is coming with something completely new, a radical new system, a radical new uh, way of experiencing God and knowing Him. Um, and it is not the old traditional religion. The old traditional religion of the Jews had to be scrapped, and what Jesus was bringing was something radically new and different. Um, so let me, let me just summarize by stating two things that are new, and, and that there's more in the New Testament. We, in fact, are new creatures. The church is a new way to worship God. We are temples. But let, me, let me talk about two ways that it's changed, right? where the religion of Jesus is radically changed from all other religions. First, it is all about grace, not goodness. It is all about grace, not goodness. Right? Our faith, the, the, the religion that Jesus introduced, is one that is built at its very core and foundation on the principle of grace. And grace by its very nature means that we are sinners and we are not good people. We're not good people. We will never measure up. We will never keep the rules. We will never keep the standard enough to call ourselves good people. And we don't come to know God on the basis of our goodness, but rather on God's goodness, on God's mercy and forgiveness toward us. Uh, It is not about about sacrifice. It's about mercy. God's mercy toward us. Um. And, and we know this. We know this in our heads, right? This is a, a doctrine that I don't think any Christian would argue with. Nobody says no. It's about being a self-righteous person like the Pharisees, right? 
but it's amazing how easy religion can slip from grace to works, from grace to self-righteousness, from grace to trying to be a good person. Right? Now some people will say, well, are we supposed to be good? Uh, well, yes. Right? But the goodness doesn't come about through my own effort. The goodness comes about through the transforming work of the cross in my life. Right? When I accept grace, when I recognize I'm a sinner and I come to God and I confess, God, I'm no good. And I fail. And I can't keep the rules. And I can't measure up. But I receive your grace and your mercy. And we come to understand how much God loves us. There is something incredibly life-transforming about that reality. When we know that God loves us, not because I'm good, but He loves me the way I am. And it motivates us to change and be different. Right? It motivates us to be like Him because we love Him. And because we want to know Him. And because we want to please Him. Right? Not, not to be approved by Him, not to be acceptable to Him, but to honor Him and to show our love to Him. Uh, this week, uh, well, in fact, just yesterday, I heard news of, a, of, of an acquaintance I know who's a pastor who took his own life. And uh, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine why anybody would take their life, but a pastor uh, who, who preaches this stuff. And he wasn't just any pastor. He was a pastor who preached this stuff. Right? He was in our church network. With Acts 29. Uh, but uh, he had problems. He, he had to step down from leadership in his church. Uh, I, I, apparently it didn't go well. And over the past four years, he was obviously struggling. right? And he finally decided it was too much and the only way out was to take his own life. Right? And I don't know, and I'm not going to say suicide is a complicated thing and depression is a complicated thing and I don't want to reduce it to a simple formula, but at the heart of it, I wonder if he really understood this principle, right? That it's about grace, not goodness. And that it's okay to be a mess up, right? It's okay to stand before people and say, yes, I failed. I failed as a church planter. I failed as a pastor. I failed as a person. But you know what? That's okay because it's not about my goodness. I'm a sinner. And you know, this is what sinners do. We fail. But you know what? I'm also a person who understands the incredible, unending grace and mercy of God. That He does not uh, ever fail to forgive and show mercy to those who come to Him and seek forgiveness. And that my worth is not based on my goodness. It's based on uh, how I am loved by God and how I have received His mercy. I don't think He uh, understood that or that He was holding on to that. Somehow I think that slipped away and He started focusing on how much of a failure He was. And He could not grab hold of and celebrate grace. Second thing we need to take away from this, that uh, true Christianity, true life of Faith in Christ is all about joy, not duty. It's about joyful celebration of that grace, constantly celebrating what Jesus has done for us, not about religious duties. Now, again, people will say, well, aren't we supposed to practice, you know, aren't we supposed to read our Bible? Aren't we supposed to pray? Aren't we supposed to do these religious duties? 
Well, we should have religious practices. right? We should read our Bible. We should pray. Maybe we should fast. Maybe we should spend time in solitude and silence and in meditation. But these should never be a duty that we do to make ourselves feel good that we've tried harder. Right? We don't do these things to prove that we tried harder than somebody else so we're somehow more worthy. Because right? that goes back to the same problem as being good. That I'm worthy not because of my goodness, but I'm worthy because I've tried hard. Now again, we probably all know this, but the reality is, I know in my own life, this is how it's worked. Um, I've messed up really bad. I've, I've, I've failed. I've, I feel bad about my life because I'm not good. And I tell myself, well, what I need to do is I need to read the Bible more. I need to pray more. Right? Maybe I should fast. Maybe I should take a spiritual retreat. Because maybe that will fix it. Right? But that should never be the motive for doing these things. Right? If we understand grace when we've messed up, we should, we should go to the cross and we should leave our mistakes and our sins at the cross and receive God's grace. Right? We shouldn't try to read our Bible more as if somehow that's going to make up for our failures. See, that's, that's, that's turning the Christian life into one of duty, not joy. Instead, we should celebrate grace and we should celebrate Jesus constantly, over and over, daily, worshiping Him for His grace. And we should see that these spiritual practices like reading the Bible are joy. It's part of worship. I read the Word because Jesus comes alive in the Word. And I can meet Him there and I can know Him there. I pray because I want to pour out my heart to God in my frustrations and my fears and my worries and my joys. And I want to experience His presence and His joyful care and touch in my life. Right? I don't do these things as a religious duty, but I do them as a way to walk with and experience Jesus and His grace. As a way to worship and celebrate Him. Because our faith should be characterized above all else by joy. Again, my, my friend my, that I knew that took his life, uh, he didn't take his life because it was overflowing with joy. Right? He missed it. Right? He missed it. Uh, Jesus came, and because he came, we have something to celebrate. Right? The, the Messiah has come. The bridegroom has come back to retrieve his unfaithful bride. And as, he sa- as Paul says in Ephesians, to wash her and cleanse her and make her pure and sp- a pure and spotless bride so that they could be together and we could love and worship and enjoy His presence. Right? That's real religion. Right? That's radical religion. It's a religion that's not like any other. Right? It's not like Judaism. And so Jesus says we need a new system. We need a new way. Uh, we need a new way to know and be with Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are the Messiah. We, we thank You that You have come to show grace and mercy. And that that grace and mercy extended all the way to the cross where You laid down Your life out of Your love for us as the great sacrifice for our sin. And that You came not for the righteous, not for good people, not for those who have it all together, But You came for sinners, for broken, messed up people who fail. That's exactly why You came and that's exactly who You call. And not so we can uh, 
wallow in, in, in the misery of our sin, but so that we can be forgiven and set free and have a life of joy celebrating your love and your grace. A grace that is truly life-transforming. And Lord, help us see where in our own lives our, our religion is slipping from the radical thing that Jesus made that's new and different and unlike anything else. Lord, we know that our temptation is to try to pour that back into the old system of trying to be good, of trying to keep the rules, of trying to be diligent, of just trying harder. And Lord, we know that those two systems cannot mix. They are just incompatible. So Lord, help us to understand and live in your grace. To be people who gladly uh, admit and confess our sin and our failures, but who also know how to take them to the cross and leave them there and go away with grace to leave uh, walking with you in joyful fellowship. And, And Lord, may we be a people who really do celebrate this grace every day, over and over. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.